Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Hello. So, yes, for those of you that are just starting this, we are playing voice issues with the people age right now because they are insatiable with wanting to, you know, play with their toys. Yeah, if you're listening on Blog Talk, you, it's you, you can just imagine. You're, you're just going to have to imagine. But, it, it is penguin's head with a tail. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. Hope everybody's doing well uh, and uh, is, uh, getting the summer off to a good start. It's a good start. It is a good start. It's warm in here, and you probably hear the air conditioning going going away in there in the background. But oh well, but, you know, garden harvest happened today in canning, so you know, extra music. That's what we do. That's what you do. That's what I do. I I I, I, I garden. I can't. Canning, well, I, I, no. <laughs> what the hell was that? I don't know. Did I startle them? Uh-huh. That was Yep. So get it in now. <laughs> or maybe yeah, do it in September. 
your event. Do your event in September because we have plenty of space in September. Yeah, and November. But anyway, All right, so Chicago. Chicago, Illinois, here we go. So the building we're going to is in the old uh, part of Old Town Chicago on North Wall Street. Uh, it's originally Piper's Baker building, uh, back, and it dates back to 1872. But today it's in the Ruth Pony Pizza. So if you want to go to a haunted pizza joint, this is the place you want to go to. Uh, it is a Victorian three-story building that once, as I said, served as Piper's Baker's bed factory. And it was well-owned uh, by the well-respected Henry Piper. The bakery was a major source of bread for the city, and they, of course, also shipped their bread across the United States. Uh, with the second iteration of Piper's Bakery, as the first building was out, well, let's just say they had a little problem with fire in uh, 1871. For those of you that don't know, that was when the Great Fire in Chicago happened. So uh, both the original bakery and the rebuilt bakery were beautiful inside and out. The elegant facade gave way to beautiful woodwork, sculpted ceiling, hand-carved art decor throughout the interior. This was fitted a thought after a storefront after Henry Piper decided to retire in the 1960s. Over the next several decades, a laundry, a hardware store, was called the bakery home. And in 1962, it was converted into a bar and a restaurant called the Steak Joint. The Steak Joint would keep much of the atmosphere that made the original building special, including turning a beautiful hand-carved black walnut display case into an eye-catching bar. The restaurant had two floors that was connected by a Victorian-style staircase, with the main dining room and the bar area on the first floor, an upstairs dining room, and smaller, lower-level dining room. Throughout the restaurant, one will find many antiques, works of art, stained glass, all of which have been purchased from art dealers or from the states of, of the homes that were in Chicago. The state joint gave away to the Adobe Grill in 2000, before eventually becoming Pizza Joint and today, recently Pizza. In recent years, the spirits of the building's past have been quiet, but during the 30-plus years of operation, the state joint was renowned as Spirit Central. The encounters and activity made it difficult to retain employees, as the local spirits like to play with them during quiet hours, i.e. before opening and during the late night when it was closing time. Almost as if the spirits were waiting, of course, for the customers to clear out so that they can have some fun as the employees exit. <laughs> Experiences included strange footsteps, singing, unusual sounds, in rooms or places in the building where there was no living person around, in the women's bathroom, in the cellar in the home that went in the house. Hi. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the guests and employees in the cell would hear the sound of women's shoes clicking across the floor and the rustle of long skirts. Sometimes the doors of the stalls would be held shut by the out, or from the outside by an outside power. Of course, no one else was in the bathroom at the time that this was happening. And strange and unexplicable lights were seen around the woman's bathroom as well. The owner, Rodolfo Perez, uh, customers and employees often would see shadowy figures, apparitions, strange lights, and other odd signs from the paranormal world. After closing time, Perez says he 
saw what looked like two people going up the staircase together. He ran up the staircase, caught them disappearing into thin air when they reached the dining room. Many of the experiences are felt in the staircase, the second floor dining area, and the foyer. Witnesses have reported the cold spot on the stairs, followed by a cold wind. Customers and staff have reported that something unseen has touched them or brushed by them. There were three not-so-nice incidents from an angry man spirit. Whether or not he was a violent man with anger issues while he was alive, we don't know. But as we talked about before, it's kind of impossible to change the personality when you crossed over. But who knows? These emotions and behaviors, as I said, can carry over. First encounter was when a staff member was locking up the front door at closing time. He felt a cold, unfriendly hand grabbed his shirt and pulled him back. He turned around. Nobody was there. Another time, one of the bartenders was going up the staircase when he suddenly felt a cold hand roughly grip his shirt, trying to pull him over backwards. He whirled around after gaining his balance to face his attacker, and no one living was there. The third encounter was with a waitress. She was busy clearing tables in the upstairs dining room when an unseen cold hand of the male presence grabbed her wrist so hard it turned white. She felt herself being violently dragged towards the staircase by a force too strong to stop. She screamed, and the manager and busboy ran up the stairs to find her scared and shaken, flat out on the floor with a broken high heel and a red mark of handprints around her wrist. The manager and staff immediately searched the place, again found no one alive that was lurking status. During the 1980s, local medium Robert DuBlay had regular seances in the state joint, contacting three spirits. Planning to have contacted the architect who designed the building, the spirit of a female customer of Piper's Bakery, and an unknown male entity. Theory is that the female customer and the male entity may be spirits of people who were actually murdered in the alley behind the one point bakery many years ago. Interestingly enough, the activity here almost entirely within the same state joint era. The decades before and the years since, the old bakery building has been spiritually quiet. Investigators think that maybe the renovations that turned the building into the restaurant got everybody stirred up in the first place. And since the fake joint is now gone, it may be that the spirits see a major source of stress for them has now gone as well. Of course, the new owners of the state uh, the building just might not be inclined to talk about any spirited activity. There's nothing stopping you from keeping an eye out for Spirit Clover if you decide to swing through Chicago and grab towards the fly. Now, Patrick, there's that, you know, definitely ghosts that leave handprints. No, I don't care for those ones either. They've yeah. never done that. Yeah, usually if they decide to leave a handprint, it's usually not an affectionate thing. No, no. <laughs> oh, we are wow. We are so wow. She's walking very quiet now. Oh. oh. All right, I'm going to keep going. You keep oh, distracting the cat. Oh, I'm looking up close. Oh, oh. Okay. Good. I'm distracted. Lulu's over here in 18, too. Are we being traumatic? Lulu is all over uh, the sweatshirt. 
go. Dizzy 
John believes that it was an inadvertent residual effect of his father's presence in the area dedicated to that. With the widely varied history of the structure housing the Red Lion Pub, it's a little surprise that a number of other spirits linger there as well. A paranormal investigation of the space, including the efforts of a psychic, have revealed a variety of characters haunting the structure. In the gambling days of the building, it is believed that a young man with some anger issues killed another man in a fit of anger over a gambling debt. One night while John's son was working at the downstairs bar, he heard a violent crash on the second floor. He flew up the steps to investigate. He found a cricket bat that had been hanging on the walls of the display had been thrown across the room. No one amongst the living was there to have done it. In other incidents on the second floor, food servers have had their food trays knocked out of their hands, sending plates and, uh, food and plates alike sailing across the room. The activity has been attributed back to the angry young man whose temper remained unchecked, even in death. Other spirits that linger on include a young man from Chicago's village Frontier Days, dressed in a cowboy's attire whose heavy boots clomp across the wooden floors on the second floor. Then there is a young lady who lingers on in the second floor dining room as well. She had a penchant for lavender perfume and would sometimes go a little overboard with it. Customers in the space are sometimes treated to the overwhelming floral scent that indicates her presence. A woman in the style typical of the 1920s has been seen in the restaurant, sometimes sporting a mischievous air about her. She is credited with holding the ladies' restroom door shut on the second floor, trapping workers and guests alike for 15 to 20 minutes at a time before the suddenly, door suddenly pops open without a problem. If haunted pubs are your thing, and if you're watching this show, they probably are, there is no better place to stop in Chicago than the Red Lion Pub for some why there's a lot of red lines out there though. <laughs> it's gotta be something with the name. Oh. <laughs> He's relentless. He is. Alright, so now we're gonna pop our way out of Chicago and go over to Alton. Uh because again another thing you can do is talk about haunted Illinois and talk about one of the most haunted places in Illinois, which is the McPike mansion. This is uh, in the southwest uh, on the banks of the Mississippi River. 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 Just across from St. Louis. And a wooded area to the west side of town, we found a beautiful home from 1869 known as the McPike Mansion. A first builder, Henry McPike. It's also been known as Mount Lookout due to its location on one of the highest points in all. Henry McPike was an accomplished individual in his life. He served as mayor of Alton and was also a respected businessman in the real estate and box-making market. He was an accomplished winemaker and served as a librarian for the Regional Horticultural Society in the 1880s. McPike would uh, live a full life before passing away in 1910. In 1925, the mansion was sold and divided into the this carried on until 1945. The house was abandoned, and three years later, there was some interest in demolishing it, converting the land to a shopping center, and then, of course, this fell through due to zoning issues. Maybe a little help from her. In the meantime, the house was ransacked for what was left behind, including the furnishings, wooden banisters, and even the toilet, becoming the victim of vandalism and negligence. 
The structure was listed on the National Register of Historic Places on June 17, 1980, but it was left derelict for many years before it was purchased by Sharon and George Hadouki. Uh, in excuse me, 1994. They had intended to convert it into a hotel, but contrary to earlier assurances at auction, they were unable to secure restoration grant money from any government agency. Despite this, they moved forward with restoring the home funded by donations and tours. Over the years, they have found that they're not the only ones with a place on the mansion. Some resident spirits have lingered on in this historic my Clyde's Mansion's spooky reputation has been featured on several shows, including Ghost Lab, Scariest Places on Earth, Fact or Fake Paranormal Files, and Ghost Adventures. So who's to say that it may linger on here after their time and in the land of living has, of course, drawn to a close? Issues might have started right from the very groundbreaking for the mansion back in the 1860s. It said that when the ground was being cleared to build stuff, uh, the house of several native burials were found on the property and moved away. Yeah, you all know that doesn't work, right? No boy. All right, so from here, the minute they moved in, the McPike family would have a hard time resting comfortably in their new home. Keeping a fire going in the house would prove nearly impossible, and even if you did manage to get one going, it would often snuff out without warning leaving the family to cope with the cold of an Illinois winter. Those are no bueno as well. Now, before you say that the family may have just simply been awful at tending fires, there's more to this tale. The family also claims you could hear a sound throughout the home that sounds like a human heart beating. A priest would visit on numerous occasions and left the house. Strange things would persist over the years. As the McPike family died out, Passersby claimed to continue to see them on the house and on the ground. Henry McPike himself is perhaps the most recognizable spirit to linger on at the home, as some believe that his shadow is the one that is seen lingering about in the corners of the home at times and has even been caught on the camera. Other members of the family seem to linger on here as well. Henry's mother, Lydia, holds sway in the home as well. She seems particularly insistent that visitors stay their pillows before being allowed to wander through the house. They have also been, uh, had encounters with Henry's first wife, Mary, with his son and daughter-in-law, James and Jenny. Jenny seems to be a bit of a trickster, although she is not shy about getting a little poke or tug on the hair to an unsuspecting person. They are just sampling some of the many spirits that have been reported here. <laughs> what makes some of the hauntings very interesting is that some of the people never lived there during their lives. Lydia and Mary both died before the mansion was built, giving them absolutely no cause for this residence. But they seem to be here all the same. Aside from the McPikes, there are three children that are believed to have been from a generation before the house was built. They play on the property, but more fit neatly in with the home that the family owned on the land before the McPikes were in the picture. There also seems to be a ghost of Paul Lockinier. Uh, the man who owned the home after the Pikes moved on. And the current owner, Sharon, has seen him standing by a window of the house wearing the same outfit that he has on in an old picture of him that Sharon actually happens to own. Experiences continue beyond the sightings of apparitions. The wine cellar seems to be the most active spot on the whole property. 
disembodied footsteps and voices have been heard in the space and the heavy metal door that leads to the cellar has been seen moving on its own. A strange and inexplicable mist has been reported following guests as they move through the cellar. Overall, there's something about this mansion's property that has drawn in generations of spirits. Perhaps some spiritual vortex, maybe a curse on the land due to the disturbed burial, but whatever the cause, the Mike Pike Mansion remains one of the most common locations in Illinois. Hi, Hi. how was the tour? Um, it was good. Uh, they there were mosquitoes, and I don't think they have mosquitoes in Denver. No, uh, not often now. No. Uh huh. They 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 met our local vampires here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. <laughs> School group out of uh, Denver. So. Yeah. Aside from well, it's <laughs> the second time tonight. They don't need a close-up of their glow-in-the-dark <laughs> color. It is style. I mean, it's cool at all. Come on down. Please don't show them that end. Yeah. Don't show them that end. Come here, buddy. <laughs> Go cuddle with Miss Lee. Go cuddle with Lee. We're good with we're good with that. Oh, there's no cat butt or nothing. <laughs> oh, they yeah they have. They napped. They got good naps in today. Oh, they were so cute while napping, and now they're a little telly. And <laughs> hey, people, they know that this is their show. This is their show. This is why I'm doing this on their show. We're, we're, just, we're just here to schedule their show time. So. <laughs> and, of course, my cooking with kittens, which I didn't do, just haven't done lately. It's been a little, at least a week. But in any case, oh, cookies. Yeah. I get cookies, yet. Yeah, first. Yeah. The next layer is a little crunchy, sorry. They're a bit crazy. Why are you apologizing for handing me sugar flour? <laughs> chocolate, I assume. It, it is Ghirardelli, by the way. I'm sorry? It's Ghirardelli chocolate. Well, and, and no... How fancy. Yeah. And, and no no haircut for Vincent. He's just always that stylish. Yeah. So. Vincent? What yeah. does it look like he has a haircut on mine? Apparently with a, with a close-up. But. No, he has not had his haircut. He's always silent. Uh, anyways, we're next going to turn our attention to the state capital of Springfield in central Illinois. It's here that we will find the Inn at 835. <laughs> now, the Inn at 835, it's uh, very creatively named. 835 is just literally the street address of the place. So it's the Inn at 835, if you're wondering where that came from. Now, just, they don't have 835, though. No, no. <laughs> but it's uh, just a few blocks from the Capitol building in the heart of historic Springfield. Built in the early 1900s, the Inn at 835 first housed luxury apartments. The dream of Belle Miller, a turn-of-the-century businesswoman and socialite, the apartments featured airy verandas, massive fireplaces, and exquisite oak detailing, the perfect complement to her flower greenhouses, which composed the rest of the city block back in 1909, in the neighborhood that was once known as Aristocracy Hill. Oh, my. Yes. Very on The woman had ideals. Yes. Now, today, for reference, it is now referred to as Vinegar Hill. <laughs> yeah. They, I, I, I tried looking it up, and granted, I could have probably put some more time into it. I don't know why it's now Vinegar Hill, but Aristocracy Hill is now Vinegar Hill. In any case, Miss Miller, back in 1909, had cornered much of the city's floral market by her mid-20s. 
she was a phenom in the floral community there. I applaud her. What on earth is a phenom? Phenom. Phenomenon. Phenomenon. She was amazing. So she she knew how to run her business. And uh, her luxury apartments that she had built quickly attracted many of Springfield's well-to-do and would continue to do so for many years. In 1994, the building was completely renovated, and the apartments were converted into seven luxurious guest rooms. And in 1995, the building was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. But according to the legend, Belle Miller became so fond of her dream home that she refuses to leave. From guests and staff come the stories of a warm, friendly voice that seemingly comes out of nowhere. On other occasions, a ghostly figure has been seen drifting through doorways. One report included a book taken from a tightly packed shelf and placed in the middle of the room on multiple occasions. On another occasion, when the wallpaper began to peel away from the wall, it was found to be perfectly repaired the next morning. Apparently, Miss Miller continues to care for her, luxur- for her luxurious home. She also seems to have a penchant for candy, as the sound of the lid from a uh, crystal candy dish is often heard being removed and replaced when no one is around. Most often reported are the strange events occurring in the elevator. Guests often report that regardless of the button they push, they wind up on a different floor. So the elevator has been serviced and inspected on multiple occasions with reports that it is in perfect working order, the events continue to occur. In any event, Miss Miller is seemingly a benign and friendly spirit at the end, which today provides every modern convenience without detracting from the sense of gracious luxury which Belle Miller created almost a century ago. Brian Tippy is the inn's administrator and chief cat herder, and he's happy to share the space with Belle's spirit. Brian says, I believe that Belle hangs out here because she likes what we've done with the place, and she enjoys hosting guests from all over. He goes on to emphasize that she's not a scary or harmful entity by any means. Uh, is this a hotbed of paranormal activity? I don't think so. Is the house occupied by the spirit of a person who built this home as a feather in her cap? It's possible. It doesn't hurt that we have an event facility that way any time she wants. Sounds like a delightfully charming and spooky place to stay should you ever find yourself in the capital city of Illinois. Wait. Yes? Is Chicago the capital? No. What? Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois is the capital of Illinois. So Milwaukee is not the capital of Madison, or Wisconsin. No. Madison. Madison is. Yeah, I learned that when yeah. I was there.
The building is constructed from concrete block, which is much larger than it appears from the outside, mostly due to the sprawling basement area of dressing rooms and storage areas. The auditorium and theater is rather narrow, and it was built like a modern movie house with a sloping floor and flip-up seats. But there's something in the theater is uh, something in this theater that is said to watch those who will enter and leave the place. For more than, more than 40 years, strange, inexplicable events have plagued this theater. Unexplained sounds and lights have been heard and seen. Things have disappeared seemingly at random. Doors have opened and closed on their own. Sets and prop pieces have moved and fallen without human assistance. Doors have opened and closed on their own, and heavy objects have been hurled at unsuspecting victims. Hmm? Oh, sure. <laughs> Just making sure my toe's not about to be eviscerated. Anyway, but who is this ghost that is said to haunt this building? Well, those who work and perform here will tell you that he is the ghost of an actor named Joe. The Springfield Theater Guild was founded in 1947. Within a couple of years, uh, had managed to raise enough money to build a theater in which to host the performances at 101 East Lawrence Avenue. Construction began in 1950, and the first theater season was in 1951. One of the actors involved in the early days of the Guild was Joe Neville, a rather strange, eccentric performer who was not well-liked by other cast members. Apparently, he was known for his arrogance and was usually difficult to get along with. He also had a massive ego, but was a talented actor, so everybody made an effort to overlook his attitude. In addition to his acting ability, Joe was said to have a questionable past as well. Rumor had it that he also had done some acting and directing in England under another name. After his death, his will was read, and he apparently left a lot of land in England to various people. Problem was, Joe didn't own any of that land. As mentioned, Joe was regarded as pretty strange and unpopular. His death was taken so lightly by the other theater guild actors that the lead role that he was slated to play in an upcoming production was simply given to another actor on the night before it was scheduled to open. Tom Shrewsbury, a longtime member of the guild, swears that if anybody from the guild who was going to come back as a ghost, it was going to be Joe. Shrewsbury has had more than one encounter with a resident ghost, even before he became the spirit that he is today. Tom knew Joe back from the 1950s, and they were doing a show where Joe played with leave. One night after dress rehearsal, Joe went home, and he committed suicide. There was apparently an audit of the books at the place where he worked, and a lot of money had been misappropriated. It looked as looked like Joe would be caught the next day. Many people feel that Joe's suicide is the reason why he haunts the theater. It may also be unfinished business of the play that causes him to linger behind. He may have felt the audience cheated him out of his chance to play a lead role in the performance, and the theater was undoubtedly the only place where this man was happy. So his spirit has decided that it does not want to leave. As the years pass, many staff members and performers have reported weird happenings here. They have discovered... Sometimes in disbelief that Joe's ghost can trigger the events that take place. Whether you believe in him or not, don't say it out loud that you don't believe in him, because that's when things start to happen. One of the actors described an unusual occurrence that took place at one evening when he and another man were building a set for an upcoming show. The friend who was working with him was skeptical about Joe's existence and made quite a point of stating this while on stage. 
That's when the power saw he was using started up by itself. Quickly following that event, some sheet supply would fell over, and a ladder that was standing nearby also fell over on its own. That was enough for the actor's friend to shout, I believe, I believe. <laughs> Colleen McLaughlin, one of the actors at the theater, had several experiences that qualified me ghostly. She has often noticed the tendency of things to appear and disappear around the theater. One night during the run of the show, she uh, had made some very quick costume changes during a particular song, and she ran off stage, changed, went back on. A few minutes later, she returned to change her clothes again. This time, everything was missing. Eventually, her costume turned up behind the stairwell, folded up neatly. No one uses that stairwell during the production, and no one had any reason to move the costume during the quick change sequence. As all actors know, you don't touch other actors' stuff. <laughs> that is a no-no. Another incident, a stage crew volunteer was alone in the theater, painting a set for an upcoming show. He used a roll of tape to show the areas where the set pieces would be placed. He finished with one section, laid the tape aside. A few minutes later, he reached for it, and there was no tape. That is called biking? Bike tape, yeah. Bike biking. I, I, took out, I, I took out that terminology because that was new to me, and I figured that only a theater person would know what they were talking about. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Dude, you keep trying to do this. Mommy's foot's got it. You got to pull that other direction. <laughs> anyway, you learn oh. something new. Tape that is put on the stage to go ahead and lay out the set. It's like tape. Yep. Noted. All right. So, um, thinking he might have used the last of it, and he's just tired. He called it quick for the night. He closed up his paint cans, moved them up to the front of the stage. He went behind the curtain and was about to shut down the stage lights when he spotted his missing tape roll. It was propped up next to the last can of paint he had moved to the edge of the stage. And most certainly it was not there a few seconds ago. He left the theater in a hurry that night. So this is just a small sample of the bizarre events that happened at the theater over the years, leaving the Legacy Theater with a legacy of being one of the most haunted theaters in all of Illinois. Oh, and Patrick shared the definition first. Nice tape. Pretty colors because it all one color per scene. That's how we know it. Ah, makes sense. So that's why you have green and blue and pink and orange and yellow. I learned something new. And you know what the glow to dark tape is called? No. Glow tape. And we spike things that are ledges with that. <laughs> oh. When you first mentioned it to Chris, my first thought was, how the heck do you spike tape? <laughs> Not without the hole. I heard you drink with tape. <laughs> yep, it's, it's, a, it's a theater. And he's theater been married set. to me for how many years now? He never heard me say I'm going to go spike a set. No, I haven't. Because you don't use that term. Because you, you know I look at you cross-eyed like you're going to do what? <laughs> I'm going to go nail. You're going to go drink without me? <laughs> No. You did that without me. Yes, I know. Used actually, but... I don't know. Maybe back in the day. Before I can see. It would make sense. Probably. Hmm. Anyway. Rabbit hole. So, we do have one more stop in Springfield. It's uh, just about a mile away to the north, just on the other side of the Capitol Complex. Here on a four-acre plot of land, City Cemetery was established as the first official cemetery for Springfield back in the 1820s. 
Around 1830, John Hutchinson, a local undertaker, cabinet maker, and businessman, laid out a tract of six more acres adjoining the city, uh, city graveyard to the west. He opened the site in 1843 as the first private burial ground in Springfield. Hutchinson Cemetery operated for several decades, becoming the final resting place of more than 700 of Springfield's earliest citizens, including Edward Baker Lincoln, the three-year-old son of Abraham and Mary Lincoln. And he was buried there in February 1850, as were many other Springfield children who succumbed to infections and diseases in that bygone era. In June of 1855, the city council approved the purchase of 17 acres of land north of Springfield to establish a new municipal cemetery outside of the city. This city uh, the city's growth, sanitation issues, noise pollution, and need for more burial space all contributed to the demand. In 1856, they purchased an additional 11 and a half acres to further expand the cemetery. A city ordinance was passed around the same time to prohibit the formation or expansion of burial grounds within the city limits. The name Oak Ridge was adopted for the new cemetery. In 1858, the city appointed a sexton to serve as caretaker to the cemetery, and it was at this time that the cemetery began to keep records of interments. Another ordinance passed in 1866 prohibited additions to Hutchinson Cemetery and allowed owners of lots there to exchange them for equally sized lots in Oak Ridge Cemetery instead. Between 1865 and 1879, 652 bodies were moved from the City Cemetery and Hutchinson Cemetery to be interred in Oak Ridge Cemetery. What happened? Okay. All right. The Oak Ridge Cemetery is the second most visited cemetery in the country, only after Arlington National Cemetery. Nearly one million visitors come to the cemetery each year to pay their respects. These high visitation numbers are largely due to Lincoln's tomb, which is the resting place of President Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, and three of their four children, Edward, William, and Thomas. As for the old city cemetery and Hutchinson Cemetery site, the Springfield School District acquired the land and constructed the present-day Springfield High School in 1917. Yes, they built the high school on the old graveyard. And this was not the only high school that's had this happen? No, no, no. But what you might expect to happen, given the nature of this show, didn't. At least not at first. The school's history was devoid of paranormal tales until 1983. In that year, an elevator was being installed in the school, and in excavating the elevator shaft foundation, they found a tombstone. It bears the simple inscription, Our Daughter, on top, and cut down but not destroyed on the front. There is no indication as to who this individual may have been. The tombstone, tombstone. Tombstone would remain in the school's boiler room and would ultimately become a piece of the institution's folklore. The new elevator quickly earned itself a reputation as haunted, as the elevator doors would open on their own as people approached it. They would credit the tombstone's owner as the ghost lingering around the newly installed elevator. After enough activity had occurred, a custodian at the school gave the ghost the name Rachel. It just felt as though this presence that now lingered amongst them should have a name. At a minimum, it seems as though the ghost wasn't offended by the name, though she didn't, did seem
issue with the drawing that was done to try and put a face to the name. The custodian and a teacher had gotten together to sketch up an image for Rachel, picturing her as a girl of about 10 to 12 years old. The picture was posted on a bulletin board near the elevator for about a week before it went missing. Shortly thereafter, it reappeared in pieces in a binder belonging to the custodian. Fortunately, that seems to be as, as upset as Rachel has ever been, as she has earned a reputation for being helpful more than anything else. That's not to say that Rachel hasn't left some people unsettled. Some maintenance people have refused to utilize the elevator, at least for their own physical being. It's not uncommon for workers to place tools on the elevator and then to take the stairs and pick up their tools on the other floor. Others refuse to go to the school's boiler room as that's where Rachel is believed to spend most of her time if she's not out and about making her rounds in the school. In 2009, the Student Film Club made a documentary about Rachel. It's a very well put together documentary piece that runs about 30 minutes and you can view it for free on YouTube. If you go ahead and search the Springfield High School Rachel, uh, it should pop up pretty much right there at the top. In the wake of publishing the documentary, many previous students and staff came forward with their own encounters with Rachel, with some saying that they had some experiences at the school even before the installation of the elevator. People were noting creepy experiences throughout the school in places such as the library, the music rooms, and the art rooms. Lights behaving erratically, a heavy, unsettling presence. That said, many of these subsequent tales popped up on the internet, and we all know that everything on the internet must be true, right? Regardless of the veracity of these other tales, Rachel's legacy remains a prominent piece of Springfield High School in the modern day. She's viewed by many as an unofficial mascot, a sometimes mischievous but never malevolent spirit that just wants to be acknowledged. This is Kate. Sure. I'm entertaining. Okay. Okay, so, oh, and yep, Patrick, that's the the documentary. Thank you. So, he's back. Yeah, he is. Uh, But, yeah, uh, yeah, this episode comes with an after show. (laughs) So you can go, go check out Rachel there. But, uh, yeah, one more stop for this evening, as we're going to the small city of Jacksonville, Illinois. Just like Springfield, there's way too many Jacksonvilles in the yeah. United States. There's a Springfield in just about every state. seems to be a Jacksonville in just about every state. And, yeah. yeah. Be careful when you're doing your research. It's like, oh, wait, that's Ohio. Yeah. I actually started editing a story for Springfield, Ohio, as a part of this episode, I'm like, mm, nope, that's a mistake. There's a Richmond. Um, There's Richmond all over Indiana. Place. Yep. yep. And I might go to school in Richmond, Indiana, which would be beneficial, by the way. I don't have to remember any town names. <laughs> We're the only Richmond that matters. I don't know, man. <laughs> I, Earl and College. I, I, I need to be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I jest. There's. Richmond on the Thames. It's kind of hard to uh, discredit our, our I mean, so We are significantly better than Richmond on the Thames. I love to be honest. <laughs> you said it. But we're, no, we're better than Richmond in the end, too. But, like, <laughs> we're definitely bigger. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, yes, Jacksonville and Illinois. 
Uh, one of Jacksonville's most notable institutions is Illinois College, which was founded in 1829 by Reverend John M. Ellis, a Presbyterian minister who felt a, uh, a seminary of learning was needed in the new frontier state of Illinois. Nine students met for the first class on January 4, 1830. Edward Beecher left the Park Street Church in Boston, Massachusetts to serve as the new served the new college as its first president. His brother, Henry Ward Beecher, preached and lectured at Illinois College, and his sister, a name you might recognize, Harriet Beecher Stowe, was an occasional visitor. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mark Twain, Horace Greeley, and Wendell Phillips were among the visitors and lecturers in the early years. In 1843 and 1845, two of the college's seven literary societies were formed. Possibly unique in the Midwest today, the societies have continued in their roles as centers for debate and criticism. Abraham Lincoln was one of many speakers appearing on the campus under the sponsorship of a literary society. Illinois College also became heavily involved with the abolitionist movement as President Beecher took a very active role. At one point, a group of students was indicted by a grand jury for harboring runaway slaves. Illinois College was also a well-known station on the Underground Railroad, and a number of tunnels can still be found under the college, leading to the Smith and Fairweather houses on campus. In the years following the Civil War, graduates contributed with distinction to the national scene. Among these was William Jennings Bryan, class of 1881, who within 15 years was the Democratic candidate for the U.S. presidency in the race against McKinley. He continued with a prominent role in politics even after failing to win the presidency. All that said, Illinois College has maintained close ties to the supernatural world as well, as the events of the past have certainly left their mark. One place where strange events have been reported is in Beecher Hall, which was built in 1829. This two-level building is now used as a meeting hall for two of the school's literary societies, Sigma Phi and Phi uh, Sigma Pi and Phi Alpha. The most reported activity in the building are ghostly footsteps that echo through the upstairs rooms. People that go to investigate the source of the footsteps will always find the room empty, only to hear the footsteps continuing now in the room behind them. Years ago, this was a medical building and cadavers were stored on the upper floor. Some believe that this may explain the ghostly activity. Legend on campus has it that the students were not actually supposed to have the cadavers that were secreted away in the building. However, they were so dedicated to collecting medical knowledge that they stole them from local hospitals and cemeteries, introducing the art of Illinois College. The corpses were hidden in the attic until the stench of decaying flesh alerted college officials to their presence. Ew. Other legends claim that the ghost here is that of William Jennings Bryan, who has returned to haunt his old school. He was a member of Sigma Phi and was often in the building during his years at Illinois College. Another allegedly haunted location on campus is the David A. Smith House, which was built in 1854. Today, the structure is home to three of the women's literary societies, the Gamma Deltas, the Chi, Chi Delta, Chi Betas, and the Sigma Phi Epsilon. There are several versions of the historic legend concerning the ghosts in this house, 
but all of them claim that she is the daughter of the original owner and that her name was Effie Smith. Basically, Effie was being courted by a young man from town, and they became engaged. When he proposed to her, he gave her a diamond ring, and she was said to have scratched it against her bedroom window to see if the diamond was real. When she realized that it was, she etched her signature into the glass, and her name remained on it for many years thereafter. The window has recently been removed, and this small and unusual piece of history unfortunately has been lost. Then the story begins to take different paths. One version of the story, David Smith was very disapproving of his daughter's new fiance, and he literally locked Effie into a closet one day when the man came calling. Fearful of her father's wrath, the young man hid himself in a small room that was only accessible from the attic. For some reason, he nailed himself in to escape from David Smith, and he later died there. According to students who have been in the attic, the nails are still visible there today, nails from the other side of the door. When Effie learned of her lover's cruel fate, she threw herself from an upstairs window and died in the fall. In the second version of the story, Effie's young man went off to fight in the Civil War. Every day, Effie climbed up to the attic to watch for him to return. When she later learned that he had been killed in battle, she committed, again, suicide by jumping out of the window. Another variation of the legend has Effie being jilted by her lover, and she again commits suicide. Regardless of what happened, the story stands that she killed herself and has since returned to haunt the house. Effie's rocking chair is still located in the attic, and the stories say that if you move the chair away from the window where it sits facing out, leave the attic, and come back later, the chair will have returned to its original position. One young woman even walked into the room one day, and the door suddenly slammed closed behind her. It is also not uncommon for cold air to suddenly fill this room, even though the windows were painted shut years ago. It was said that ice-cold wind would often come from the window with Effie's name etched in the glass. Another interesting feature of this building is the tunnel that once exited from the dirt basement. This tunnel was once supposed to have connected to other buildings on campus and was said to have been used during the years of the Underground Railroad. As operations connected with this uh, abolitionist system were always kept secret and no records exist, no one knows for sure if the stories are true. Today, the tunnel is boarded up and remains only a curiosity of times gone by. Another reportedly ghostly location is Whipple Hall, which was constructed in 1882. The spectral occupant of this place is known only as the Gray Ghost. The upper part of the building serves as a meeting hall for the Alpha Phi Omega Society and is the location of the security office. The lower part of Whipple is the meeting hall for the Phi or Pi Pi Row Literary Society. The base of the building is only accessible from the outside and is divided in half. One side of it was once a classroom when this was Whipple Academy, a college prep school. Perhaps the most famous sighting on campus of the Great Ghost occurred to a girl who was leaving a Pi Pi Row party one night and had to retrieve something from the Alpha Phi Omega Hall. She started to ascend the curved staircase, and as she reached the middle of the curved stairs, she looked up to the top landing and saw a man standing there. She was dressed in gray, and she quickly realized that he was not a security officer. As she peered a little closer, she also realized that he had no face. She began to scream and ran back down the staircase and out of the building. 
to, due to the noise of the party. No one heard her, though, and the revelers won't learn of the strange experience until later. A room that is located on the third floor of Illinois College's Ellis Hall is also rumored to be infested with ghosts. According to reports, no one lives there if they don't have to. Rumor has it that a girl hanged herself in the closet there around 1986 after not getting a bid from a literary society. It is said that doors open and close on their own, appliances and radios turn on and off, and that windows have a habit of going up and down under their own power. Or at least that's one version of the story. Other students and alumni of Illinois College say that the girl who haunts room 303 was actually a young woman named Gal who died of natural causes in this room. Apparently, her parents were aware that she was terminally ill when she went to school, but as attending college had always been her dream, they allowed her to go anyways. She died while living in Ellis Hall, and a small plaque is mounted on the door of the room to her memory. It is said that her ghost is a mischievous one, opening doors and hiding things. Local legend has it that third-floor residents have often said that if they lose anything, they will ask Gail aloud to return it. The missing item is usually found a short time later. Another resident haunt can be found in the McGaw Building. This is a performing arts building, and you will never find anyone alone in the auditorium at night. The place is allegedly haunted by the ghost of a man who is seen wearing clothing from the 1920s or 1930s. He's usually seen out of the corners of the, of, um, the eyes of those who are on stage. The feature... Uh, the figure is widely connected to Frederick Hayden, a former dean of the college. Hayden died while attending an Illinois college football game in 1922. So why does Hayden show up at the theater? Today, the McGaw Building, which was built in the 1970s, stands on the site of the athletic fields from earlier in the century. It is often joked that if people see him, they need to let him know that football games have moved down the hill to a new field. Many other spirited tales permeate the Illinois College campus. Tales of lights turning on and off and doors opening and closing on their own are common. There is also a surprisingly wide variety of haunted closet stories across campus. Sites where several students and faculty have been rumored to hang themselves or in some cases be hung up by malevolent creatures. So it's hard to tell if these are all variations of a single origin story or if there is some veracity to each of the individual hauntings. Details from many of these stories are somewhat lacking. That said, there is little doubt that Illinois College has more than its fair share of spirits lingering across the historic campus. That was the last story for tonight. Mm -hmm. Finally got him to settle down. Okay. So, why am I a two toy? 
Because when I was out there, I was thinking about going down to check it out, and I was like, yeah, I don't really feel like being in the car for eight hours. <laughs> and, yeah, body snatching was definitely a thing back then. Uh, we actually have our own stories locally related to what is now a VCU Medical Center. Of course, it wasn't known as VCU Medical Center back in that day, but we have our own stories about it, which we talk about on our Specters in Shades of Court Ends Tour and on the John Marshall and Spirits of Court Ends Tour. Yep. Which, again, you can find both of them have availabilities on the calendar several times in the month ahead. So check them out. Come on out and join us. Um, body snatching tonight. Well, what? I thought you had body snatching tonight. Body snatching tonight? Okay. This is a Richmond vampire. Uh, stay curious. Hmm? <laughs> this is a Richmond vampire. What about the Richmond vampire? Talked about body snatching. That's what we were just talking about, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Like, I didn't just say randomly. Body snatching and April. That works. I, oh yeah, I, I'm, I, I can talk about so, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway. but if, if you should. Yeah, but I mean, like, you can put body in, like, literally every day. Oh, yeah, definitely could if we were so inclined. Well, and, well, the thing is, when you have a group of, like, what, 14, I don't know how old they were, but uh, however they were, they want to know about this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> they like the creepy and the macabre stuff. Yeah, so I mentioned, uh, actually, you want to know where I link it to? Uh, so I look at the Richmond Vampire, but the thing is, I give a key there at Daniel's and Noon. Ah. Bears under a mort safe. Okay, yeah. So I mention the mort safe and the mm-hmm. history of them, and I let them think about it for a bit, and then I tell them why. Once I get to, yeah, okay. Good deal. Mm-hmm. I like it. I know. It's not part of the official script, but I like it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, neither is putting Poe into uh, Capitol Hill, but. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. But, yeah. So, our next uh, Facebook Live, we're going to be slightly off. Well, just very slightly. Hour. Like an, an hour, hour off. Because, hour and a half. Um, we're going to be in New York for it. We're talking about hotter New York, and we want to get it done before the fireworks start outside our window. Because we're going to be doing it. It's July 3rd. So, it's not July 4th. It's not the 4th of July. But, but where we stay, they do the fireworks show on the 3rd, and we want to make sure we're done before they start because you won't be able to hear us. Yes. <laughs> it's so, literally right so I got to be driving early then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're going to come and uh, join us for the show, it, uh, let's see, you're going to want to leave probably, to give yourself a little bit of leeway, probably about 9 a.m. I'm always giving leeway. Okay. <laughs> oh, I walked right in. Yes, there. we did. Oh. No, I will not be there. <laughs> you can still chime in on the chat. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's going Maybe to be. Maybe I should join the live and like wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Seven p.m. July third. I am working on getting the posting put together, so you can so keep it earlier. Hour and a half earlier. Hour, hour and a half earlier. So, um, but then we'll be back a couple weeks after that, back on our normal schedule. Oh and yeah, it'll be something local. Yep, yep, yep. But we'll we'll uh, we'll get that posted soon. Yeah. So wait, what's next week? Um, Haunted New York is on July 30th. Fitting. And then and then you said we're doing something local after that. Local. Can you tell me after the live? Yes, I will. Oh, okay. That's keeping the cat in the bag. It's not exit. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
we're 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 in the area. We're local, but we're not in Richmond. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that'd be much, 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 much closer to home than usual. Okay. But not Richmond. So. Yeah, Richmond. These are some stories we've been sitting on for a while, and I finally threw together in the script. Oh, oh I, I have ideas. I Vincent wants to say goodnight. Vincent, yeah. he's, he's like, this, uh, I know you guys end on time today, but, like, can I, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> oh, but, uh, yeah, oh, and, uh, yeah, so how much time does it take to research, write, and edit each live topic? Um, it kind of depends on what I already have saved in my research library. Um, like our haunted New York, you know, we've I've had a lot, a lot of research um, already done. So it's just kind of picking and choosing, and then um, kind of filling in the script. And then Chris can take anywhere from five to eight hours on the script, depending on how well I do. <laughs> no offense, I think that my editing on the New York script is going to be bad. I need to go back. We can talk about it later. Okay. <laughs> but there's... there's Beth's there. in trouble. No, Beth is not in trouble. Beth busts her butt doing this type of stuff. But I've already I've had a first look through the New York script, and I, I have some thoughts. You yeah. want to stick to the mountains? What? You want to stick to the mountains? No, not at all. Not at all. But I mean, the, the thing about New York is we have covered New York a lot. A lot. Oh. We've actually done three episodes thus far that have been exclusively New York. We did North Country Spirits. Yep. We did the Haunted Finger Lakes. Yep. And we have done Broadway. So New York's big. New York's big. There's and, a lot of good And there York. is a lot more material for us to work with. So, Half of one of my shelves over there is nothing but Haunted New York books. Half is well, a bit of an exaggeration, but there's a lot of haunted New York books over there. So I will say I I was been flipping through them those books and I hate to say I regret buying a book, but some of them there's are, a few of them that are a little questionable. They're they're weak. Yeah, I'll put I'll put it that way. Yeah, there's one I haven't touched at all because I thought it was better than it was, and it's not. Yeah, it is what it is. But Regardless, two weeks from tonight, we will have Haunts New York for you. And, uh, uh, yes, um, Dana, we will be getting around to um, Massachusetts. Uh, it yeah. is on the – Dana has been asking about that one a lot. Yep. Uh, it's get on it. <laughs> yeah, it's in the queue. It is it's in the queue. Uh, and uh, all of our – and Dana, also all of our episodes that we have done to date, everything's on YouTube. Yep. So, as a matter of fact, as soon as we get off the air here tonight – I'm going to be downloading this video from Facebook and uploading it to YouTube where it can live in perpetuity, or at least until YouTube decides, decides to be no more, which I don't see that happening anytime soon. So, uh, yeah. I think that's it for tonight. Yeah. But with that, we will see you all on the 3rd, and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah. And remember, we're out doing the tour thing seven nights a week. So take a look at the schedule. Come on out and see us soon. And if we don't see you on tour soon, well, we'll look forward to seeing you back here in a couple of weeks. Also, so. like, what are you doing if you're not taking a tour? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean seriously, I mean, there's if, if you don't take a tour with us, there's like what? Nothing. <laughs> and we have like new tours coming up, and then we're also. So I also saw a special tour. Yeah, yeah. On my roster for next year. Or next week, yeah, thank you. So, yeah, different, just quote-unquote regular, classic walking tours on the calendar now. And as Lee pointed out, we also have added a, uh, the John Marshall House tour is back on the calendar again for July 29th and August 26th. Yeah. So. so if you haven't seen the John Marshall House tour, you absolutely have to. People always say, Hey, when are we gonna go inside? This is your opportunity. So take the John Hart Marshall House first. They're super fun. Yeah. Patrick also points out that maybe eventually YouTube might gain sentience like Skynet. Okay. <laughs> they start. They they the they fixed a lot of the. Well, not a lot, but they fixed one of the um, funding problems. Now you only need like. 500 followers on YouTube in order to actually make money off YouTube. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Yeah. Tell your friends to like us on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on it. So, anyway, yes, right. we will bid you all a farewell, farewell for tonight. Uh, I'll let you hit the button. I will. Yes. I'm so. closer. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Bye, everybody. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.